Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Cody Skahan, and I'm a host on the New Books Network. I'm talking today with uh, Dr. Todd McGowan. Um, Todd McGowan is a professor at the University of Vermont in the Film and Television Studies Department. He received his PhD in English from The Ohio State University. Um, And he's a scholar of critical theory, psychoanalysis, and film studies. He has written extensively on a wide range of topics, including the works of Slavoj Žižek, the relationship between psychoanalysis and Marxism, and the political implications of contemporary film and popular culture. His books include The Real Gaze, Film Theory After Lacan, Enjoying What We Don't Have, The Political Project of Psychoanalysis, and Only a Joke Can Save Us, A Theory of Comedy. Today, we're talking about his new book, um, Enjoyment Right and Left, from Sublation Press. So thank you, Todd, and welcome to the podcast. Cody, thanks for having me so much. It's it's my pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. So just to start off with, um, could you maybe talk a little bit about like um, the background to enjoyment right and left, why you wanted to write it, like, um, and yeah, sort of the thought process behind that. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I, 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 the idea for the book came from just seeing the way in which primarily leftists were convinced that we just need to give people enough knowledge and then they'll they'll come around to a certain political position. And as someone whose thought is steeped in psychoanalysis and German idealism, I thought that that was not correct. And so I, I thought, well, what would it mean to think about politics from the perspective of enjoyment? And I I've so earlier books, I've tried to do that, like the book on comedy. I'm glad you mentioned that. That's my personal favorite. <laughs> no one else seems to like it as much. Uh, but uh, so I think it's funny, and no, I don't think other people do. Uh, but but uh, so that so the the that idea of trying to think about that could there be a politics of enjoyment? That's what led me, or that enjoyment could be a dividing line in politics. And and the other thing that struck me was it seemed like, unlike the left, the right has a pretty good sense of this, even though it's not articulated. But uh, so Donald Trump Trump was just arraigned yesterday. Uh, when we're recording this, and he he has a pretty good sense of mobilizing the enjoyment of his followers. And so that I wanted to say, like, okay, is that just a right-wing project? Or is that is there a leftist version of that? And and so that's basically that question is what what ultimately led to to me writing the book. Yeah. And I think maybe just to pick up a little bit from there is um like it seems like this is something that you kind of talk about um, on your podcast a little bit too, why theory, because um, I know some of the episodes talked about um, thinking of a leftist project of enjoyment. Um, so it seems like to me, at least, that kind of suffuses um, the thinking um, and how you got to got to this point of writing the book. Yeah, that, um, that's absolutely correct. In fact, my co-host on the podcast, Ryan Engley, said to me, this is the first book you've written that I think couldn't have been written without the podcast. I think that's probably true, right? Like that, that a lot of the issues we talked through on the podcast and 
a lot of the ideas I, I worked, you know, worked out with Ryan. So he really is a kind of lurking in the background of the book. Uh, and, and yeah, that, and that, that it's it just every like that idea of like enjoyment as determinative for how we act and what we do. I, that was, that really appealed to me. And you're right. That's, I thought about that on the podcast and then in other earlier books as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and yeah, so you're talking about how, like, for example, on the right, that they're, they have this sort of maybe more developed, um, idea of, of enjoyment and know how to mobilize it. Um, but then, and you go on in the book to say that, like, um, the, the political right, left and right, um, have like sort of different forms of enjoyment, different modes of enjoyment. Um, so the, the rightest form of enjoyment is kind of like the belonging, um, through exclusion, um, which as you mentioned with like figures like Trump, this is pretty transparent of how this is mobilized. Um, and then, as we said, like the left has kind of failed in providing like their own form of enjoyment. So could you kind of explain the difference between the right form of enjoyment and the left form of enjoyment and right, sort of right. why the so, left has failed? Yeah. Like, so you, as you pointed out, like the right is an enjoyment of belonging. And so you, in order to create a belonging, you have to create figures that don't belong. And so you know, Trump is pretty good at this, like the the immigrant, obviously the figure, the criminal, uh, the 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 politically, what are they, the woke mob, like this would be the politically correct professor, all these people, like they're, they're the enemy. And then that creates with them on the outside, that creates a sense of belonging. The left is a little more difficult because uh, I think that you know, if you, whatever the term you use, like left, emancipatory side, like they're uh, any kind of politics emancipation can't have an enemy. It can't have somebody that it's it's singling out and excluding. And so, I that that led my thinking to 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 led my thinking down to this idea of non belonging and this that that that. So if the if the right is about the enjoyment of belonging, then the left is really about the enjoyment of non belonging and how. And I think it's harder to constitute because it's just inherently more amorphous but it's it's nonetheless i think that i mean one of the ideas in the book is that all all enjoyment is the enjoyment of non-belonging and on the right it's just parasitically you know because you're enjoying if you're on the right through those figures that you exclude whereas the left is just all of everyone's excluded and so it's uh i i think that that's a in a way a more direct form of enjoyment than on the right which is again parasitical on the on the leftist version so even though the right has it seems to be doing better in terms of enjoyment it, it, it nonetheless is is parasitical on the leftist form that seems so hard to get hard to articulate and um you kind of say that like the um you can't ever truly belong so as you say like the rightest form of belonging isn't a, a real form of belonging because um yeah it's yeah as you say parasitic and and just based on excluding some force from the universal field right um, which is why you can't ever belong because you're always relying on this you're really relying on the figure that you exclude in order to create your own belonging so there, there's all there, that's the contradiction that that besets all attempts at creating a, a, a belonging i think yeah and then later on you also argue that like um because there's no like one transcendent there's no transcendent authority figure uh that can say what belonging is because every single authority figure there has to be someone something above it that's legitimating and saying ah this is what belonging is um 
so yeah, like I guess, um, how do you see that like working within the political sphere, this sort of like um, transcendent like authority of just keep going up and saying, oh, but like belonging, belonging all the way up. So right. yeah, where do you see that breaking down? Yeah, politically, right. Like so, so if 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 uh, let's just take an example. Let's just take the American political example, right? Of of the 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 make America great. So that that's commonly called here MAGA, right? So the like the MAGA position would be like, okay, you're you belong to this group, and then you everyone else is. Ex- but what justifies your belonging? Well, it's this official authority of let's say Donald Trump, but then where does, for a lot of people, it's interesting, like, where does Trump himself has to get his authority from something, which is why, and it's very interesting. So when he, so Trump uh, actually facilitated the vaccine, to, this, it was called um, Project Warp Speed to develop vaccines against COVID. And he he still wants to take credit for that. So it's this interesting thing happens at his rallies where he'll say, you know, we have to, we develop we develop these great vaccines, and then people start to boo spontaneously. You're like, well, wait a minute, he's the leader, and yet you're you're booing him because it just shows that like he's himself not his authorization only comes from the fact that everyone else believes in him, right? But but in fact, what they're really bowing down to is their own investment in that authority, and so there's the idea is that there has to be something behind. That where that really substantiates his authority, and that's what they're loyal to. Like he's not being a true MAGA figure when he endorses the vaccines. So all, there's some true MAGA figure behind him that he's not he's not a, 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 at the level of right. And, to, and 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 so that. But whoever manifests themselves publicly, they would always have that problem. Like they would always need some authorization from behind. But and and you would say like oh no it's just actually the people themselves that make the decision right they make it up there's no but the point is they only are invested in that movement insofar as they think there is an authority figure attached to it right like there's no there would be no MAGA movement without Trump right so you so simultaneously they make up the authority but they they need that figure of authority and the there's never a figure of authority that's really authoritative enough right there's always some I mean, this is true about any authority, right? You you get to know the authority and the authority is lacking. Like Hegel has this great line in Phenomenology of Spirit where he says, and I think he plagiarizes this from Goethe, but it's not clear, that that he says that every every hero, every, uh, no, what's the line? No, no person is a hero to their valet. And then he says, and Hegel goes on, he says, it's not because the hero isn't a hero. It's because the valet is a valet, right? And the point is that if you're really proximate to someone, you always see their flaws, but you also miss their grandeur, right? And I think that's the pro- you know, that's the problem with the. There's always going to see that. There's always going to be a flaw in the leader, and so you always appeal to this other person that's sort of behind the scenes that really is the authority. But every but if that person ever came down, you'd see that they're you'd see they were flawed too. Yeah, maybe we shouldn't get into this because it's a bit farther afield from your book. But like you can kind of cl- I think clearly see this. In the form of like conspiracy theories and groups like you know QAnon and everything talking about something behind the scenes behind right, even Trump, right? It's absolutely true, right? Like all conspiracy theory depends upon this figure behind the scenes that's never fully manifested, right? Because if they were ever fully manifested, 
then we would see, oh, wait, that authority is lacking too. And they're not pulling all the strings perfectly. Like if it's the CIA or whatever it is, or, or Q or no, Q is the one exposing the theory, right? So it's, or the, the, the Democrats with the child's uh, sex traffic ring or whatever, whatever it is, like it's, it's, it has to be, it has to be mysterious and behind the scenes. It can't fully be manifested because anything that's fully manifested is evident lacking right like you can see it's lack yeah um and it just strikes me i realized that we kind of didn't really get into um the particular way that you use enjoyment um in this book so maybe that was maybe we should talk about um enjoyment and pleasure and sort of how those differ and sort of the way you use those in the book um yeah. a little bit if you could talk about that yeah 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 so i think it's really important and interestingly that that distinct like i drew that distinction a little bit but then the editor, uh, Doug Lane at Civilization Press was like, wait a minute, this is really important. You got to really develop this idea. So a lot of that I added because of his influence. And I think so pleasure is pleasure is all is 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 always momentary. It's fleeting. And as Freud describes, I think really nicely, it comes from a release of tension or excitation, right? Like you get some tension build up. It's real and Freud had his. The, what he was thinking of was sexual act, right? Like you build up some excitation, it's released, and then you that's the moment of pleasure, right? And so the moments leading up to that that build up are are for Freud painful, right? Like they're you're building up excitation that that's painful because you're not yet experiencing pleasure. And so the way I see it is enjoyment is actually that mo all those moments of of tr where you give trouble to yourself, right? Like the way that you cause yourself problems that's actually enjoyment and it's opposite of play like it's all the little things that that cause you to want to release the excitation it's what builds up excitation rather than or excitation or tension rather than releasing it and so there's a you might say it's like the pleasure that we suffer from like the pleasure that's too much pleasure or or the problems we give ourselves and i think it's one way to think about it is we if you if you're if you're just in a neutral situation you don't feel anything right but if you but what 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 i think we often do is find a way to make the the situation interesting by like i don't know gossiping with someone or doing something that's ultimately going to cause us problems but it 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 disrupts the homeostatic situation and introduces some trouble and i think that's that's what so enjoyment is to me not this like great, huge, ecstatic thing. That's more like pleasure. Instead, enjoyment is like this, this just this little trouble that we give ourselves. And so often it's sat, like things we sacrifice, you know, so things of that nature. Yeah, I, I think that sort of um, the way you described it just then also makes it like even more clear of how Trump serves as this figure of um, enjoyment because he is clearly, you know, being disruptive and and you know saying things that you're not supposed to say and absolutely you know, right yeah. like he just like there's a sort of polite civil consensus and what does he do he like disrupts that he says all the things that like break up that consensus and so there's an enjoyment in that absolutely i think that's absolutely right it's really good analysis that there that and i think that's what we see in these right-wing figures around the world, right? Like, I, I mean, it's incredible, like Modi in India, Erdogan in Turkey, obviously Putin. I mean, they're, 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 they, 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 they disrupt 
the liberal consensus and that gives us something and then think about how it it becomes the focus of all our attention right like putin invades ukraine and all of a sudden everybody has something to like read about in the new york times and i mean obviously it's terrible for the people in ukraine but it's it at the same time it's a source of enjoyment for everyone like everyone finds this except the people obviously dying from it, but everyone else finds this in, like it gives them something to talk about, something to read about, something to write about. So it really, it's, it has a stimulating effect. Although not, it's not pleasurable, I think, right? Like I think it's the opposite. Yeah, so um, maybe we should, um, this is, yeah, very clearly you're explaining the writer's form of enjoyment really great. Um, so maybe like we can move in then talking about what, um, a little bit more of your argument um, for the leftist form of enjoyment, which um, you're you're borrowing, you're talking, uh, bringing Hegel a little bit more here, maybe, and and you talk about um, sort of the goal of the left should be to um, affirm the position of universal non-belonging, and this is by like occupying the contradiction. Um, so could you kind of talk about occupying the trans, uh, the contradiction, and sort of maybe a little bit um, why you think because you you talk about how contradiction is sort of like a necessary part like we're trying to um a lot of times overcome contradiction or or reduce contradiction but you think it's important just to actually hold on to the contradiction so um could you talk about that a little bit yeah cody that's right so i think that in this a lot of this grew out of a book that i wrote on hegel and uh and i think that that's hegel's position ultimately is that he thinks that contradiction is ultimately irreducible both socially and ontologically and even epistemologically and so he thinks that what we can do is not, we can't overcome it. So we have to reconcile ourselves to it because there's a fecundity to our contradiction. Like it's the thing, it's productive for us. It's creative. It's everything that, everything that enables us to transcend our situation. And also he thinks that contradiction is the source of equality and our, like we're free because we're contradictory. We're free because the society, society is contradictory. If something was harm, if the society was, and I think it makes sense. Like if the society was harmonious, then we would be trapped within our particular identity within the society. But if it's contradictory, then we're free to act in a way that goes against what determines us, right? Like I, I was determined to be whatever, like, uh, Midwestern, devout Christian, maybe even priest, whatever. But then because those determinations were part of a whole contradictory structure, I was able to break out of that, start reading Kierkegaard, and then that led me to Sartre and to Hegel. And so then that was then and to Freud. And so then there, then then I all of a sudden those determinations weren't determinative. And and I think that's why contradiction is so important for the for project of emancipation, that it allows you to move beyond what you're determined to be. And I think that it also means that the social order doesn't have the last word on you. And, it, and, and, and ultimately uh, that that's a point, that's why we're all equal because any kind of identitarian hierarchy is always beset by contradiction. And so it's always gonna, no one is more, no one is more free of contradiction than anyone else. And so that's the absolute equalizer. So I think that's, why for me contradiction is aligned with with the left and with the project of equality and freedom because it's the thing that everyone shares in a way that like if it was an if it was about an identity then it's not going it can't be shared right like it's going to there's going to be some people that have it and other people that don't so i think that that's for me really why we have to see contradiction as on the side of 
emancipation and, and rather than again like some kind of uh, substantial identity that we would all try to take up yeah and um along this line of argumentation you you bring up um the black lives matter protests um because you're saying that like for example you say that like um instead of uh like affirming um an identity or an enemy saying like uh identifying an enemy which is ultimately how you describe sort of identity politics on the right how it operates it's the exclusionary principle it's defining us by saying what we are not basically um but instead of black lives matter like the the motto was i can't breathe um and so you talk about how this is kind of uh standing with and maybe occupying the position, affirming the position of universal non-belonging. Um, so yeah, could you, I guess, um, yeah, unpack that a little bit more and, and yeah. add some maybe detail. Yeah, that made a, that that movement made a great impression on me for that is precisely the thing that you say that it's this identification with the position of non-belonging. So those are the last words of George Floyd, I can't breathe, where he was killed. And I, so it's identifying with the person who's in this position that's ostracized, right? And it's not saying, wait a minute, we want to be the cops or we want to be the, and I, I think uh, Occupy Wall Street kind of had a similar thing, like we are the 99%, right? Uh, although there's a slight maybe enemy problem with Wall, Occupy Wall Street because the, you know, against the 1%, but but maybe not. Uh, and I think that in, in each case, it's like not, not we want to become the 1% or not we want to become the cops, but instead, uh, we are we. I can't breathe, and we are the ninety percent. So I think that it's interesting too that one of the other things I talk about in that discussion is the way in which the the Black Lives Matter movement people would say to the cops, "Come kneel with us, like you can join our side." So there wasn't far from the cops being an enemy; they were thought of as a potential ally, and I, that really made an impression on me. Like I thought. Well, that's exactly right. Like the leftist movement really is all should even say to Trump, right? Like, may come over to our side, like bring your people over to our side. Like you can, you can, it's not too late for you. You can still, you can join in. But I think too many people like take glee in this, like, okay, he's a, it's a left, right. We have the enemy, we're their enemy. And, and so I, I think that is absolutely not, I think once you fall into this friend enemy kind of thinking, then you're on the terrain of the right and not on the terrain of the left. So I think that's very, very important. And I, I don't think, I think it's interesting. I have an interesting perspective living in Vermont because, so Bernie Sanders, of course, leftist figure in America. Uh, and there you'd go out into rural Vermont in the 2016 election and you'd see signs in the yard, Trump, Bernie, right? And so you're like, wait a minute, that seems weird because we have one right-wing fanatic and then a, a pretty maybe the most radical leftist in power in the u.s yeah so but the point is that that person would be convertible right like they weren't just this hopelessly lost right-wing dupe right they're convertible so i think that 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 i think that was that's really important to think that way if uh, on the left yeah i think clearly it's um that was very convincing to me because like the u.s has a i mean everywhere but like perhaps the U.S. More, most like visibly has such a problem between um, right and left and, and not being able to hold these conversations with each other. And, and so it's, yeah, it's very useful for to me, for me when you're pointing to how we can, um, you know, still hold to our values, hold to, you know, what we hold and is important, but 
invite the other in and say, let's work on this together. I absolutely think that. I think a couple, I think absolutely dialogue with the other opponent is absolutely crucial. And I also think something like forgiveness is also absolutely crucial, right? Like if, if there, if there was no forgiveness, I should be stoned for my views when I was in high school and early college. So I, I think that they're absolutely, those two things I think have to be integral to any leftist project, right? So, I mean, maybe it's my Christian background, but I do think those things are really, really important. Yeah. I mean, that's like the, the Hegelian, like the uh, identity of identity and non-identity. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, like, yeah. Um, and yeah, going along with that, just in, in terms of sort of um, what I think is just really, really great about the book of, of how you show maybe a, like, you know, a different alternative to the way we talk about politics, the way we talk about struggle um, is like the utopia chapter, because um, I think it kind of goes along with what we're talking about here when you talk about um, like you can't have this utopia um, without like you don't want to reduce suffering because that actually that would like get free of suffering. Um, you say like in the utopia chapter, you say unless utopia contains non-utopian elements, it can have nothing to make it enjoyable for us. And thus there is nothing we can desire to create it. Um, utopian with, without non-utopian elements would be something other than a utopia. And then the footnote you talk about um, Frederick Jamerson, you say what makes Frederick Jamerson recent utopia possible uh, desire is its obvious deficiency rather than its perfections. Um, so clearly, like as you said earlier, it's not about with Occupy or, or Black Lives Matter trying to be the rich person, be the excuse me, uh, be the rich person, or to be to be the cop, the one with the power. Um, but it's to say that, like, yes, we're all suffering, but we can, um, yeah, create a better world. So, like, I guess a lot of these lines, um, what sort of like conditions of society um, do you see occurring that would be um, perhaps more more emancipatory, more utopian, um, while still remaining like containing elements of suffering or whatever? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the term equality, I think, is really really important, right? Like because equality would necessitate that people in a certain higher position not having as much as they have right like so and i think that so i think it would be an, like if if we can imagine equality it would never be an equality of like everybody like marx kind of has this dream of you know the the forces of production are just unleashed and then there's kind of there's plenty there's bounty for everyone and i sort of think well, no, it would be kind of like everyone has to skimp a little bit, you know, <laughs> like that, like that seems to me, I think there's something more appealing about that than this idea of like endless bounty for everyone. I mean, I'm not, I don't think Marx is totally guilty of what I'm saying. He he says, but he kind of thinks that. So uh, I think that's like that, the, 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 uh, you know, we, certain people are suffering terribly so that a, a few can live with incredible excess, right? But the problem is that the people living with that incredible excess don't even feel they're like they're, they're they 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 themselves feel more lacking than the people who are in in terrible suffering. So the closer that you get to this Edenic world, the more you feel lacking. And so I think that there's a, like a fun like an embrace of you know just a, a, a an embrace of equality. I think with the idea that equality is going to be at a at a certain level that's going to be you know like it's 
it's going to be a little like there are going to be things that are difficult about it. And I think that that's that I think we wrongly think that that would take away from its appeal. And this kind of ties to the Jameson thing. But I think actually that adds to something's appeal. Right. Like I always think of the the the, the pep talks I used to get. I used to play football and American football in, in high school and college. And, and the the uh, the coach would always say, you know, it's not going to be an easy road. It's going to be a terrible road. This 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 te- being on this team it's going to be hard it's going to you're going to but and and no one was like okay i that sounds terrible i quit you know no one ever said that they're like yeah they like they start to cheer and they're happy because they're like we want like the difficulty of it is the that is the reason why to do it you know so i think that that i think that has to be tied in to any notion of like how emancipation is figured and how we're moving toward emancipation. I guess your your American football past may be one of those things that we have to forgive um, about. Right. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, yeah, that's 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 really great. Um, it is. Yeah, for me, it just makes sense too for any like quote unquote utopia. There is there's going to be some element of of suffering and and, and striving for it and. Um, even just to maintain your values, maintain um, a sort of sense of equality will take um, at times great suffering and, and, great and suffering, hard work. Right. And, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I think, and yeah, I think just, it has to be. I mean, one of the things would be like the equal distribution of suffering, right? Like that's a, I think that's a very emancipatory. I've never thought of that before until you said that, but I think that's a really emancipatory idea right like like i think that capitalist society wants to condemn certain people to suffering while other people don't have to suffer but of course they still do right i think it's really wrong to think like oh there are these rich people that don't suffer at all and then you know uh f scott fitzgerald has this great line where he says you know the rich they just aren't like the rest of us and i think on the part of me is like yeah, I get what he's saying. Like they never have to worry about not having a job or where the next meal's coming from. Okay. But I think in another way, I think that's very ideological and very misleading because I think the rich are equal, they're, they experience themselves as lacking even more than, again, I said like the, the most downtrodden person. So I really feel like that there, in a way, there is a kind of equal distribution of lack, but there's not an equal distribution of suffering. And I think that would be one way to think about what emancipation would look like. Yeah. Just just as a side note, um, it would be really interesting. Uh, have you read Ursula K. Le Guin's uh, The Left Hand of Darkness? I love that novel. Yeah. Okay. That I mean, to me, that kind of sounds like a little bit what you're talking about. I, it does, right? Because, yeah. I mean, God, their world is so uninhabitable, right? Like, it's just, it's too, I mean, I would hate it because I'm really cold anyway, but, but, uh, and the planet is, I think it's nicknamed winter, right? Like, because it, it's so cold. Uh, but, but you're right. Like, there is a sense of like, just like the suffering of everyday life. And then they try to equally destroy. I think that's really pretty good as an example. I, I, I remember, I think it's in, I don't know if you, I think it's in the book you mentioned, Enjoyment Right and Left, or no, no, uh, uh, Enjoying What We Don't Have. Yeah, I, I have too many books with enjoyment in the title. Uh, but but in that book, I think I talk about Left Hand of Darkness, Dispossessed, and Lathe of Heaven all together as a thing about fantasy. So yeah, I think that that book is a great, and also the way that sexual reproduction works in that book is is kind of interesting too about the like i was just thinking about this you know like everyone is you know this 
there's this whole sense of like, uh, you hear this discourse a lot, that uh, women are biologically programmed to monogamy because they need someone to take care of the, they need, because they have to worry about the care of the child. But I just thought to myself, well, why would that? And I think Left Hand of Darkness nicely gets out of this stupid biological determinism, right? Because they, for one thing, they 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 change sex all the time, right? They're constantly going from one to the other. But I also like that my, like, what, you could imagine easily that the reaction to the woman has to bear the child is that, okay, so it's the, it's the man's responsibility to then take care of it after it's born the whole time, right? Like, like, I don't think that there, I think that's a thing that we should always think about when we think about emancipation. Like, nothing is, everything that seems determined, we can always give it a different valence, and then it, then it, it becomes something else. And I think that's really, really significant, important. But great, yeah. great reference. I, 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 yeah. I love the novel. I'm glad yeah, that I think you're still, still reading it. It was one of my anthropology professors that assigned it um, to read it from, yeah, kind of an emancipatory perspective, at least, you know, I guess maybe also just like, I think, yeah, the point of contradiction. I think uh, like Le Guin's a great thinker, both like occupying the, the contradiction and um, yeah, emancipa uh, emancipation. And it's really also, true. It's really true. Yeah. You know, like, like in, um, in Dispossessed, you think like that's basically like, uh, a capitalist country and a, a communist one. And you would think like, oh, it's just about how great the communist one, but it's not really that. It's really like both are problematic in different ways. And so when they come together, it doesn't solve anything. It kind of like the problematic nature of both comes to the fore. I think you're right. Like she really is a thinker of the contradiction. And even in the, even in the left hand of darkness, getting rid of sexual difference in daily life doesn't get rid of suffering or anything. It's just like, it, it, it just, it's still there and constantly present. So. Yeah. And I, I just love Ursula K. Le Guin, especially because her, uh, her uncle was actually a really famous anthropologist. If you didn't oh, know that. I didn't so know. That's where a lot of her, I think that's where a lot of her ideas and, and oh, stuff comes from. So that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Getting back to, to your book a little bit, enjoyment, right and left. Uh, just what you were talking about too, with, um, the uh like capitalism and and um like uh its relationship to enjoyment and suffering i think this relates um because like the the point of capitalism is like um capitalism is like uh exists based on the idea of there's going to be people who are like um non-belonging because there's like there's there's the surplus and and you, you write like um the only way that people can afford um accept like uh sorry let me let me find this quote here. Um, yeah, the problem is that paying the worker only the necessary wages capitalist leaves the worker with no money to buy excess commodities and assist in the realization of surplus value. So the one task of capitalists uh, runs directly against the other. The particular interest of capitalists comes into contradiction with with the universal drive to surplus value. Um, so within capitalism, um, like the worker can't afford to buy these extra wages. Um, so yeah, I get, could you unpack that a little bit more? Yeah, yeah. So, so the so yeah. Marx is pretty good on. I mean, great on this actually. I think so. His point is, and this is made clearest in a book that he didn't publish. It's called the Grundrisse. It's a it's notebooks. And his point is that that there is this that that really every capitalist wants the other capitalists to pay their workers a lot so that they can afford to buy like. Apple wants Amazon to pay their workers a lot so they can buy an Apple Watch and so they can buy a new iPhone, all these things. But 
but the vice versa is true. Like Amazon wants Apple to pay their workers a lot so that they can buy whatever books or that's all I buy on Amazon. <laughs> whatever, like uh, uh, I don't know what else is on Amazon, uh, grocery, whatever. Um, so, so that, the, but the problem is that, that as particular capitalists, each one wants to pay their workers as little as they can so that they can make as much profit as they can. All right. So that's the, for Marx, the real contradiction between this universal drive of capitalism, which is to have everybody pay their workers more so that they can buy more, more commodities. And then this particular drive of the individual capitalists. And so the, the real contradiction of capitalism is between for Marx, the universal and the particular. I think that's absolutely correct. And so that means that capitalism can never be a really universalist system. So it's always caught up in its, and it's, it's interesting, I think that one of the critiques of a lot of people that are critical of capitalism criticize it as being too universalist, right? Like it, 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 it gets its tentacles everywhere. Once it comes to a new part of the world, it like overtakes it. And while I see that is true, I don't think that's the right way to think about universality. I think it's actually like a certain particularism manifesting itself. Because once you start to think like a capitalist, you start to think as a particularist and not in universalist terms. Like you think, how can I make the most profit here? Not how can everyone do better, right? No one, if a capitalist thinks, how can everyone do better? They're not going to be a really successful capitalist, right? They're going to be, they're going to be a failure. So. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, yeah. I'm just, is that, is that where you got the, like the book uh, cover? So the book cover is like a, if you haven't seen it, everyone listening, it's like a upside down smiley face, like it's unhappy face, but it's like the Amazon logo. Yeah. Um, so is, is that where you got that from? Like uh, I, I, I would love to take credit for the cover, but that okay. <laughs> came up with it and they're just like, do you like this? I'm like, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think it works. Yeah. Especially, yeah, just talking about um, enjoyment, having enjoyment in the book title, and it's a, actually an unhappy face. Like, I think yeah. that shows the contradiction there itself. Shows the contradiction, and also that's kind of, in a way, that's how I theorize enjoyment, right? Like, enjoyment is, yeah. that, in a certain way, the unhappy face. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, of course, Amazon, yeah, great symbol for all of this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so it strikes me, like, as we've been talking, we haven't talked so much about... Um, the cultural references you bring up in the book, especially as a media studies scholar. Um, so do you, I'm just wondering, do you have any like favorite uh, cultural references or, or jokes in the book that you would like to talk about more? Uh, yeah, I, I, for I, one, so, yeah. I love yeah, your jokes. Of, I love yeah. your jokes. Oh, well, that's, Cody, you're just, you warm the heart <laughs> of my heart. Like I just, I, I, I'll just say this thing. So I was once interviewed by the, our school paper. They were just interviewing whatever me as a professor here. And uh, they're like, what's your goal as a, as a professor? And I'm like, well, it's really like, can I, do I have a, for me, a successful class is have I got the students to really laugh and have I told some good jokes? And, and that was, and that was basically, the, so the, the headline of the article was professor aims to get students laughing. And, and my spouse, Hillary Neroni was like, she also teaches at University of Vermont. She's like, you idiot, you idiot. You had a chance to say like, I want to teach them Hegelian dialectics and get them interested in psychoanalytic theory. And then you did this whole stupid thing on jokes. This is dumb. And I, <laughs> and I, I confess that she was right, but it is true that, that that's what I'm most interested in is because I think 
it's not just purely like uh, vanity. Like I think that the joke is always dialectical and speculative, right? Because it tries to, a joke tries to bring two things together that are disparate and then show how they're both in the Hegelian way. You mentioned this line from Hegel, identity is the ad identity of identity and difference. And I think every joke tries to do that. It brings two things together. It says these are the same and yet they're different at the same time. So yeah, and I, 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 this book was the most personal in terms of the references and the jokes. So the, it's, it has my ultimate, and I'm a little sad I used it because it's like a one-off. I'm not like, Slavoj Zizek will just use a joke again and again and again. I just, I can't do it. So this is the only time this joke is going to appear, but there's a joke about a monastery in the book and, and it's my, it's my ultimate favorite joke. So that, the, I, I got that in there and then I got some stuff about Christmas movies which I, I, as you know, from the podcast, I, I have a great affection for the Christmas film. And then uh, and then in the last chapter, I talk about the teen film that I love the most, Heather. So there was a lot of a lot of things of love that I got into the into the book that I really, really love. I'll just I'm going to tell the the monastery joke, even though it's it, I've told it before on the I've told it a lot of times, but uh, I hope people will forgive me. Uh, so, so this this visitor, and this is an example of a leftist emancipatory joke. I think I think it's the uh, paradigmatic example of a leftist joke. And I I've asked people, can you come up with another one that's equally showing the logic of non-belonging? And no one has ever. I've people send me a lot of jokes, but no one's ever sent me one that they thought was. The equal of it. So, so here it is. So, a, a, a visitor goes to a monastery, and he's have has a monk there to show him around, and they they go around during the day, and finally they get to dinner, and the the visitor sits next to the monk at dinner, the guy that's showing him around, and they're having their dinner, and all of a sudden someone shouts out thirteen, and everyone just busts out laughing uncontrollably, and. The visitor goes to the monk like what what's the deal like it's just a number why is everybody laughing and the guy goes no you don't get it so we've all been together so long that we we our jokes are just numbered so we don't have to say the whole joke you just say the number and the visitor's like oh i guess that makes sense okay and then someone shouts out 56 and then there's laughter but it's just not they're not laughing as hard and the, the visitor goes why why was why the difference and the, the monk goes well that 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 joke wasn't as funny as the first one. <laughs> the visitor's like, okay, I guess. And then the visitor, though, he, he, he says, I think I got the hang of it. And so he then he shouts out 125. And then the, 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 the whole hall bursts out with even more laughter than at the first joke. And the visitor says to the monk, I guess I really told a good one, huh? And the monk goes, no, you don't understand. We haven't heard that one yet. And so I really, I thought to me that joke is perfect because you're if you laugh at it i think it's impossible not to laugh at it the first time you hear it i noticed you're not laughing because you knew the joke was coming. yeah I, i've i've heard it a couple times a couple times right so then, it's like it's like it, when yeah. slavoy tells that joke about niels bohr and the horseshoe or the the coffee without cream i'm like really are you telling that again <laughs> so it's a it reach that level with that joke so but the the point is that 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 there there is no one who gets the joke right the joke itself doesn't exist so that that what you're laughing at is the non. There's no one who belongs to this exclusive club that gets that that is in on the joke. And I, I think that's really to me the perfect perfect joke. There actually is another one that's a little close to it. So I wonder if you maybe you don't know this one. So 
so the the it's under in Stalin. This is not in the book. Uh, we're in Stalinist Russia, and Stalin wants to get a sense of how the people feel about him. So he goes to the movie theater, and there's there's an opening uh, sequence, like a news of the newsreel. And Stalin's himself up there and he gives a little speech and everyone in the theater stands up and claps except Stalin himself. He just stays in his seat and just kind of sees what's going on. And this guy standing next to him is clapping. He's like, he turns to Stalin. He goes, look, I agree with you, but it's very dangerous what you're doing. And I think like, I, I love that joke because it <laughs> makes it seem like Stalin is also one of the people on the outside of, of Stalinism, right? So I think there's a, that's kind of close to the, to the to the um to the to the to the monastery joke but not quite i don't think it's quite at the same level. no yeah not quite the same i have to say yeah the first time i did hear the the monk joke i did i did laugh a lot it's, i mean it's, I, I, I didn't invent that joke i just i you know i found i someone sent it to me or i found it so uh i might have but adjusted it a little bit for my purposes mm. but uh yeah i i just the first time i heard it, I was like, it's amazing and i i i for for like the 50th time I told it, I still got amused by it, but now I, I, I've i lost a little bit of that, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get it. it. It seems to me, though, just like also just, yeah, your usage of uh, cultural references, um, and I haven't read your your Brooklyn comedy, but I'm sure you get into it in and and, and that book as well, but like, uh, you know, a certain form of comedy, the joke that doesn't have maybe a butt of the joke or, or whatever, like it is, it is a sort of like affirming the non-belonging it's like universal kind of thing because yeah everyone can laugh at the joke everyone uh like these kinds of jokes it's it's they're not too unaccessible or anything it's not just like privileged group will get it like it's right. just it's just funny so yeah. um yeah i really appreciate your usage of, of pop cultural references and and jokes throughout the throughout your writing yeah it's just my way of thinking right like i can't it's not like a I put it in there for the audience. I put it in there for myself so I can think through the thing. Like I can't mm -hmm. think without that. This is a deficit of mine. So I have to put it into the writing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Um, so maybe uh, we could talk about a little bit, um, for example, like the chapter you have on um, the superego um, and the, the form of the superego, like the role of the superego on the left because um, this is on some things we've been touching on earlier in the episode too with like um, identity politics and, and creating um, enemies. Um, so I just wanted to ask, and maybe you can use this as a starting point to explain the background a little bit and everything, um, but would you say that like the, the superegoic function is the perhaps the biggest danger to like a leftist emancipatory politics? No, I think that's absolutely true. And I think it's it, it's it's a danger that today I think we're even more and more encountering, right? And 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 the problem with it is that you you know it gives you the you have the sense of when you make a super egoic condemnation of someone else, a couple things like it's it's it it like moralizes politics. So it it takes a moral position instead of a political position. It typically we talked about forgiveness a lot. It typically is never about potential forgiveness it's all just about the accusation and the and the condemnation which is how superego functions like superego is never like okay you can be forgiven for this sin it's almost like you're guilty for this sin right so i think that's really important too and i think that it 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 it, it, it has a way of alienating people i think that's maybe the worst 
hard about it today is that it turns it makes the left seem like I don't know for lack of a better word like kind of school marmish right like like uh, you know just like uh, we're gonna we're gonna chide you for these moral indiscretions of thought right so not even like not even actions just like misspeaking not not saying the correct thing and and I think that's a real that's a real danger because that's never going to be a popular position, right? Like it's never, like, I know these guys that, that um, they're great guys. They, they, they work in different uh, blue collar things. They've never been to college in him. They've been working different blue collar jobs. They read Hegel and they read, <laughs> they read psychoanalysis. They're great guys. And, and they, they're, they're like, look, the people we work with all of this, like, you know, moral condemnation of like they it's just it, it it just turns them off totally, right? So like the way and and they're not like they're not just with the white working class; they're just like working class altogether. So I think I think that is a real way that the academic part of the left is has a real problem. I think in in like keeping itself rooted in. Like, because there's not going to be any kind of emancipation. This is maybe so obvious, not even to be said, without the full participation of the working class, right? So, so there's no, like, and I think this is a problem with certain, uh, you know, moderate parties uh, in around the world is that they've they're now made up of more and more professional class, and then they're so that they have a certain kind of social position that seems. Except, but their 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 position on economy is always going to be how do we protect the our own and so they're always going to be in egalitarian in economic terms. So I think that's so I think this emphasis on superego is tied to a a turn to a, 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 there's it's a kind of almost a critique of I think you could say this a kind of critique of working class politics, right? Like I think that that and and of politics, I mean, again, it's just a moralization of politics. So I think it's a real problem. Like, I don't think politics needs to be focused on economy solely. I think obviously we need to, there, I've mentioned Black Lives Matter. I think we need to be attack, of course, transphobia, uh, anti, you know, the struggle needs to be anti-racist, et cetera. But I think that, that so it's not just this economist, economicist, economicist argument uh definitely not an economist are you uh but but i do think that the, but it's against this any kind of moralization that that then is super goic and involved in condemnation and and again like we mentioned before like dialogue right like like have the have have people come have a dialogue right like have a not not condemn them out of existence but you know let them show how wrong their position is i think yeah, um, I, I think that's really interesting. And I'm just wondering if, uh, like, maybe you could talk about a little, because um, how you occupy this the site of transgression, um, while also, like, kind of, like, I guess, yeah, do, do you see how, like, maybe the, the superegoic function is, is working against the, the occupying the position of uh, contradiction or, or the site of transgression? Um, yeah, 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 I okay. think that's right. I think that because if you're taking up a super egoic position, right, and, and condemning the other, for one thing, you're making, you're having an enemy, right? Like super ego always has enemies. That's, a, that's important. So you're in a non-contradictory position. In that sense, and the other way, I think, is that you don't, you don't see yourself as also guilty of the thing that you're 
condemned, right? And I think that's really important, right? Like you're, like if you're a contradictory being, then you're never pure. And the the response to that can't be this self-flagellation of, oh, I need to get rid of this little bit of whatever it is I have in myself that's guilty, because you're never going to get rid of it. Instead, it has to be this acceptance of the universality of contradiction, I think. And I think that's what superego doesn't, doesn't do. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so since we're, t- we're on the sort of thematic of, um, yeah, occupying transition and, and, and superego and the function of the superego, um, you have a chapter on uh, breaking the law. And so you talk about how, um, like, uh, historically or, or different times that, like, um, breaking the law or going beyond the limit of the law has been kind of seen as the sort of emancipatory position or, or that's that's the way. Um, the law, Agamben has a sense of the law as a barrier to emancipation, you're right. Um, and that, like, um, so could you kind of describe maybe how, like, because um, you, you do affirm transgression and, and occupying the contradiction and, and things like this um, of society. So it's, it's on one hand, you're creating this position that doesn't exist within the, within this, uh, sorry, within society, um, but that's, doesn't just mean necessarily breaking the law. So could right, you talk exactly. About that so like bit? transgression for the sake of transgression, that's what I'm talking Like, I don't think transgression yeah. is inherently emancipatory, right? Like that's, and I think you're right to say that that, uh, there are many leftists today that still think that, think that. And I think that historically that's been a leftist position that there's something like going to the extreme, going beyond the restriction of the law. There's something you know, revolutionary or emancipatory about that. I just think that that, for one thing, it can't be universalized. So I think it's an anti-universalist politics. And the other thing I I would say about it is that I think that it, it gets stuck in transgression. And then once you get in that logic, then you can't get out of it. And so you're constantly seeking to transgress, to transgress. It's almost... I, I would I'll connect this to what we just had talked about with the logic of superego, right? Like, just like superego is constantly upbraiding you for not being pure enough. It's it's also, it's in the logic of transgression too, because it's saying transgress more, 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 right? It's never, you've never really transgressed enough. So I think that that's, there's, that's, it. it the logic of transgression suffers from this superego problem as well. Yeah, I really like that connection. Um, and just generally, like, for example, with that in particular, but just kind of within the book as a whole, it seems like there's just a lot of sort of practical insight that you can gain um, for your own, like, it's it's sort of a collective project you're articulating, but it's also like, for individuals, it's it seems very realist, like it's, um, you know, uh, with, the, with the part on utopia, for example, you're not saying like, oh, you have to work towards this, like, perfect utopia and you have to be pure all the time and you have to do all these things um so it's like it's definitely for me uh, this book lays out a project of like meeting people where they're at and being very realistic um and i think for me a lot of this comes out with with sort of the use of psychoanalysis um so would you say you agree that like yeah so the influence of psychoanalysis is part maybe partially where you're getting the sort of more realist right right yeah i mean it's really yeah, I don't know that. I mean, uh, <laughs> it, it's a wholly, wholly informed by psychoanalysis, right? Like, it's not just partially. Like, it's all. I mean, there's this whole background of German idealism and some kind of Hegelian thing too. But 
but yeah, I mean, for sure, Freud and psychoanalysis is is really a driving influence. And the idea of, you know, the idea of like us as lacking contradictory beings, that's that seems to me essential to the psychoanalytic project. So for sure. And and so you're right that there's a kind of it's both a collective, the book is both about a collective project and then also about individual project. You know, somebody said, a couple people said to me this about this book I wrote, Capitalism and Desire. They're like, I treat that as a self-help book. And they're like, I don't think you would like that. I'm like, no, 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 it's fine, right? Like, I mean, except it's a kind of anti-self-help, but like this one, it's kind of a, it's self-help in an anti-self-help way. <laughs> like it's, because it's about how, you know, like think of, think embrace the damage to yourself, right? Rather than try to overcome, try to find a way to overcome that. Yeah, I think, yeah. So I think it's just like, um, like, yeah, readable for such a wide variety of people. Um, that, but I'm wondering with that, like, um, did you have like sort of an audience in mind for this book when you're writing this book? Yeah, my mother probably. <laughs> she she died just after it came out. But, um, you know, she always said the only the only book that she liked was she read this book on comedy and she said finally you wrote a book that people can read and so i wanted this to be another one she unfortunately got alzheimer's then died of covid but um she couldn't so she couldn't read it but i i was hoping like someone on that level right like she's a she's a first grade teacher or someone so she's educated but she's a pretty simple person and and i and and so that that was that was kind of the you know i wanted to be I mean, I didn't want it to like my book on Hegel, clearly like a book on Hegel or a book on capitalism. It's going to be a little uh, esoteric. Right. And I think that even though I tried to make it as little as least the least esoteric, it could be both those that they could be. But um, a book I thought a book like a, about enjoyment, it should be. I, I my I guess my ideal would be it's like the 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 most you know, if somebody with a high school education could read it and someone who has a PhD and they could each find it, I mean, hopefully, right? I mean, whether that's true or not, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that any, maybe, maybe if you have a PhD, you think, I I just gave a talk at, um, I shouldn't say where it was because I'm going to say something negative, but I just gave a talk and and all the graduate students liked it and, and the, the faculty members thought it was, it's not all of them, but they're like, this is pretty rudimentary. And so, okay. Fair enough. I mean, that's, that's, you know, they thought it was like, funny, but, but rudimentary. So, okay, that that's fine. But uh, so maybe that's the fate of this book. And that's okay. I don't care about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as a master's student, I can't speak for like, you know, PhD educated people, but like, I would send this to my professors. Like, I think okay, they well, there you go. get it. So yeah. But uh, yeah. And when you were talking, I thought you said, um, you thought a book on enjoyment should be enjoyable, like when you're yeah. talking. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely, right? Like, if it's not fun to read, then it's not really a book on enjoyment, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So we've covered a lot of ground, um, and um, it's not a super long book, but there's a lot in it. Um, so is there anything like in in our conversation that you'd really like to talk about that we may have missed or, or glossed well, we over? Didn't, we didn't, we talked about that joke. We didn't talk about the movies, right? Like, so, yeah, okay, sure. yeah. So one of the, so I did, I do talk about the Christmas film. So I, I really, what I like about the Christmas film so much is that, and I think this is universally true about the Christmas film. And I talk about this in the book that there are films that set up a, a, a group or a, a social order or something through 
the castration of the symbolic father figure. And I just think that's such a radical way to him. And I think that's what Christmas is. I mean, I think it's true to the spirit of Christmas, right? Like Christmas is about God's castration. Like God comes down, the infinite takes the finite form. And so I, I just love that. And I think, you know, it's a wonderful life maybe is the most obvious. It's very clear that the father is he's going to kill himself. He's full of, he, he's, so, he's so bereft of enjoyment. Um, and then he learns to embrace the very, and, and I, one thing I love about It's a Wonderful Life is that he learns to embrace it's only through the seeing how terrible things are. And he learns to embrace the things that before were an obstacle to his enjoyment as the source of his enjoyment. My favorite thing is, I don't know if you remember this in the film, there's a part of the stairway that comes off. It's like a little knob at the top of the, on the banister. And he knocks it off and it just drives him crazy in the beginning of the film. And then when he comes back at the end, after he's been shown this alternative world by Clarence the Angel, he knocks it off and then he kisses it. He's so happy that, that it, to, to have this thing. So I think that that's the, the, to me, the great thing about that film, the way it, it shows how we can actually learn to embrace the obstacle through this understanding that everyone is, everyone is a subject of black subject of castration. So that's, that would be my, that would be my final point of emphasis is the great, the greatness of the Christmas film for that reason. Okay, great. Yeah, I think that's a great place to leave it. Um, but we also like to ask people um, that we have on what they're working on next. Like what what sort of projects do you have in the irons or uh, what's what does your future hold? <laughs> Other than death. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm gonna I sorry, I just finished a book on called something like embracing alienation. So it's you can see the connection probably it's obvious. And then I, I the other book that I is a book more it's more technical it's 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 about capitalism it's called critique of pure excess so those are the two that are that i've just kind of got done but i i'm going to write another hegel book sometime in the i mean i basically have that finished too so mm, okay great yeah that's exciting um i'm looking forward to those uh for sure and if they're anything as good as this book i'll, I'll definitely enjoy uh, them that's and get so nice of them. you to say <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, anyways, thanks, Todd McGowan, um, author of Enjoyment Right and Left from Sublation Press. Um, so, yeah, where would you recommend people uh, to go to, to get this book? Uh, I, get I, I don't know. I mean, do, uh, with the cover, can I say Amazon? I don't think so. <laughs> so Amazon does sell it. I don't know. Sublation has a website, so you can buy it from them, but I think it costs more than Amazon. So maybe you want to use Amazon or some other bookstore, some local bookstore, <laughs> like order. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I never think about things like that, but yeah. Um, or uh, people can email, I don't know. They can email me and I can send them out a copy maybe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Thanks for that. Um, so yeah. Thanks once again for uh, joining me on the podcast. This is Cody from the New Books Network signing off. Thanks.